0: You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my
1: co-host, Rob DeHoopy. Hey, Hoopy, How's it going, man? It's going well. Middle of December, winding down for the year. Kind of excited to uh, do a recap today for, for everyone and uh, kind of just really think about the busy 2023
0: we had in 340B. Yeah, we've had some developments here at the end of the year, but when you look back at 2023 in total, man, there's been so many things that have impacted 340B covered entities, you know, kind of coming out of the the COVID hangover at the beginning of the year. Um, and I feel like it's been nonstop changes and developments and challenges mostly for 340B provider groups.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And not not a ton of positive. I mean, we had a couple of positive things, which we'll definitely cover and highlight. We don't want to yeah. make it all negative, doom and gloom because, you know, a lot of us, and I would, I would say a lot of it's still chatter. Yes, there's some impact and things that impacts and things that occurred, but yeah. And a lot of it's just kind of like we're still trying to wait and see what's going to happen. And, um, and of course, the chess match uh, between 340 pricing, manufacturers, covered entities, federal courts, HERSA, CMS. There's so many different groups that have um, you know skin in the game that um, that are trying to you know push the program in one direction or another. It's uh I'll be honest, it's fascinating to see. You know, we always try and keep take a neutral stance. Um, you know, sort of co- covered entity pro covered entity, but at the same time, we understand the program. You know, it's not that simple. Um, right. Yep. Manufacturers have some some concerns, uh, legislators have concerns, health systems have concerns, FQHC. So um, you know, it feels like we, you know, we're we're kind of in the middle and and we're trying to identify how do we help everybody the best, and especially our covered entity um c- constituent. So always fun, always exciting, I guess. I don't know if fun, but I'll say it's always exciting. Yeah, definitely interesting.
0: And lots lots to talk about. You're, and you're right, too. Maybe there hasn't been a lot of actionable developments or things that have required covered entities to, you know, concretely change program operations, but lots of things that have generated lots of discussion about what covered entities may need to do in the future. So we'll talk about things like patient definition and uh, the need for transparency and maybe some legislative developments. But you're right. A lot of it's just been conjecture to this point, then, you know, just brewing conversation around, you know, how the 340B program needs to be organized um, to work for everyone.
1: Definitely. Definitely. All right. So, so I know you definitely did some work. Um, you know, 340B scripted means that we we don't pre plan what we're going to say. But in this case, because we're doing a top 10 today, um, okay. we're doing a top 10 items, or what, what we call it, top 10. Topics. Developments, hot topics.
0: topics. Yes, yeah, so when we meet with uh, folks during audits, we usually call these things hot topics. So these are the things that are we're paying a lot of attention to in the 340B space. And I think the format for today was just to kind of recap what we thought were the the top 10 um, developments impacting 340B covered entities over the last year. And, and we tried to crowdsource some opinions on what those hot topics were in terms of rankings. So we submitted our to our, our 340B staff. Kind of a survey and say, hey, identify what you know you personally and with the covered entities that you work with. Which of these ten topics are the most important to you and your um, your constituents? I guess, but th- there's a little bit of discrepancy amongst the staff. Everybody kind of weighting the importance of these things a little bit differently. Um, I'll share which ones were the most important as we go through them. But I think for our discussion, Rob, maybe what we'll do is just chronologically from the beginning of the year to now just in, in each month or in each quarter, kind of describe some of those key developments and um, maybe where we're at today with our understanding of those developments. And I might ask you to weigh in on what you think the future holds for for some of those things as well. Does that sound fair? Sounds fair. All right. I'll get my crystal ball out. All right. So we're going we're gonna to start beginning of the year. Um, so January 2023, the U.S. Court of Appeals um, for the Third Circuit. They made a ruling in the, the Santa Fe versus HHS uh, lawsuit regarding contract pharmacy provisions, essentially, ruling in favor of the manufacturers, indicating that they don't have to provide unfettered access to 340 b drugs through an unlimited number of contract pharmacies and that's primarily on the basis that 340 b contract pharmacy provisions are not stipulated in the phs statute so there are no laws that prevent the manufacturers from implementing different policies and procedures to um, restrict access in contract pharmacy bill to ship two channels there are two additional federal court cases one in the seventh district court one in the DC circuit that are pending decisions. I feel like we've been saying since the summer, we should have a ruling any day now, but we haven't as of our recording here. So we've got one court case that's been ruled in favor of the manufacturers, I believe HRSA's, uh appealed that case, um, or is going through the process of appealing that decision, two unadjudicated uh, decisions. And the thought is, if there's a major split in the court rulings, Maybe this is an issue that gets escalated to the Supreme Court, or if the rulings are fairly consistent with what happened in the Third Circuit Court back in January, we may not see relief from the contract pharmacy restrictions um, through the courts. Rob, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, so those two courts, of course, are Chicago and um, D.C. circuit courts, um, and they they represent the other three manufacturers that um, have these appeals in place. And all right, I almost I almost look at this as a there's not a win here for covered entities because since the first the Philadelphia um, uh, Circuit Court already ruled in favor of manufacturers the best you can do is sort of tie right and like you said to, then then Supreme Court would have to decide to take it up and so it's such a long time frame I almost but I, I'm curious too because the you know that, that first court of appeals came out almost a year ago in January of 2023 and here we are in December. I think all of us assume. Gosh, those other two courts would follow suit, you know, in some reasonable time frame after. So I'm surprised we haven't heard from either one of those. At yeah. the same time, it's almost. I feel like we've had manufacturers continue to increase. I don't know that's. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, uh, oh no, it's well, I think so this. We, is but, it.
0: I think this kind of you know this opens covers both. Yeah, the the fact that with this court ruling that may have emboldened some of the manufacturers more manufacturers implemented restrictions some of the manufacturers tightened up their restrictions so that's Mm -hmm. been a big challenge too this time last year or maybe even two years ago people were wringing their hands wondering if they should begin submitting data to 340b esp to get their pricing right now that's not even really an option to make up some of the lost opportunities so now people are saying wish oh man i wish i could upload data to 340b esp so a a much different perspective from covered entities today, as we've seen manufacturers really tighten things up over the last year.
1: Yeah, we should clarify that, you know, definitely larger impact on hospitals than grantees, but we have seen an increase on the impact to grantees. But you're right, uh, the 28 manufacturers impacting hospitals today, only three of the 28 allow you to submit data to the ESP program and get all of your contract pharmacies back. So the other 25 um, either can select a single contract pharmacy, and there's some of them have additional rules, uh, 40 mile rules and so forth. But if you have an in-house retail pharmacy, for the most part, in general, you can There's a handful that still allow health system one exceptions if the pharmacy is owned by within the health system, but not the covered entity. But even that number is dwindling. So I, I will say every time I talk to, you know, larger health systems or hospitals with a lot of contract pharmacy footprint, especially if they have an in-house retail, we just, you know, recommending every everybody look at your budgets. Make sure you're budgeting appropriately for the decrease in contract pharmacy savings. Because, you know, if you annualize your 2023 and then come into 2024, you have to really look at all 20 of those manufacturers and what that impact is going to be and, it's tough on um, some of our some of our clients that really, really have seen it financially uh, take a hit and that that impacts the programs that they created based on 340B savings or charity care dollars that they had available to do more things. And so that's hard. It's a hard thing. Yeah. Dan, I think, you know, the the alternate strategies to kind of uh
0: mitigate the the lost opportunities here, um, they're really difficult to pull off. You're talking mm-hmm. about maybe contract pharmacy to in-house retail pharmacy conversion. That's a heavy lift you know there's been some discussion out there around different types of alternate distribution models manufacturers are starting to identify those distribution models and calling those things out in their um policy restrictions so you know i think covered entities having to be really creative to to mitigate the the loss savings coming from the manufacturer restrictions and just creating more headwinds i think yeah
1: yeah i def- definitely think that's probably going to be the big thing to watch from a uh savings perspective and what's going to happen because we're still waiting for those two courts and we're waiting to see if there's additional manufacturers, additional restrictions. I think grantees are where I'm a little concerned, right? The impact of grantees, especially FQHCs with a lot of primary care, a lot of contract pharmacy to to capture some of those savings. They don't really have a lot of administered drug savings like some of the hospitals with infusion centers do. And uh, I'm really worried about FQHC impact in 2024, um, as well as just, you know, an expansion of those restrictions. So definitely a big, big, I'd say top three to watch in 2024.
0: Yeah. All right. Another um, development, so moving on through the spring of 2023, in March, um, we'll talk a little bit about um, some lobbying efforts. ASAP340B was a a newly launched um, joint alliance between NAC, which is a health center lobbying firm, and Pharma, the lobbying firm tied to pharmaceutical manufacturers. They launched this joint alliance, calling it ASAP340B, in an effort to advocate for 340B program reforms. created a lot of uh, chatter again amongst the 340B community because what you're seeing here are really unlikely partners. You've got the grantee communities, you've got the CHCs and pharma partnering together to propose Uh, Policy principles, 340B program reform principles that many, uh, I think, viewed as an attempt by the grantee community to kind of separate themselves from the large disproportionate share hospitals and large health systems that have been targeted in some of the mainstream uh, news media outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times from last year. We saw a lot of articles, a couple of articles talking about some, you know, maybe uh, abuses of the 340B program or alleged abuse of the 340B program. NAC also strategically walked away from attending the 340B coalition. Summer meeting, so a little bit of a fracture amongst hospitals and grantee providers in advocating for the 340B program. Yeah,
1: that, that I think is one of the harder things that we saw in in 2023, right? That that split because I think I think for the covered entities, I think together is stronger, um, right? They, there's they're not as strong as maybe some of the pharma lobbies and and some of that group and. Um, you know, and, and that and, and I and of course if for if, everyone if you want to if you don't remember, we had Vashera keys on. And if you're interested, I think she, and you know, for our our thoughts are we really understand NAC better and, and Vashera came on the podcast um, around that time frame, kind of uh in Q2, I believe. And um uh, so it was Q3, right? You have to remind me. But um it was shortly had, after this, so it was like where I think yeah. it was April or so, yeah. Oh, perfect. So Q2, yeah. and, and yeah. you know, she shared their perspective with NAC and everything, and it, it makes sense, right? That's why I always say you, you've got to hear both sides and, and what NAC was thinking and even going back to the contract farms restrictions, you know, I think she made the point, FQHCs are more heavily impacted by these restrictions. Manufacturers have some concerns about uh, duplicate discounts and, and things they're seeing on their side and, and erosion of their savings and so forth. And and so, you know, and I think Vacheria pointed out, we have to do something because they have to protect the FQHCs. And they saw where this was going to FQHCs and if more and more manufacturers impact the FQHCs, this could be really, really bad for them. Um, they rely on 340B savings pretty heavily to, to you know um, execute their missions that they have to take care of these lower cost populations, which most FQHCs have. So it, we understood where Vashara is coming from and NAC is coming from, but so hard to see that, so hard not to see as many FQHCs at the 340B coalitions. And of course, um, 340B uh, uh, kind of agendas and topics showing up at more NAC or grantee specific conferences with the Ryan White Conference in combination with NAC and some other ones. And Just makes it hard, you know, we're able to get some of our FQHC staff out to those conferences, even doing some booths so we can still support NAC and that group. But at the same time, hard not to be able to see everybody at 340B Coalition. So I hope something can happen in, in 2024 where that gets resolved a little, but haven't heard much about that yet. All right, let's move on. We'll talk a little bit about um, CMS
0: and some Part B modifier requirements. So again, in March of 2023, CMS published new guidance around the use of Medicare Part B billing modifiers, so the JG and the TB modifiers for 340B covered entities. Specifically, CMS started or had communicated that they're expanding the requirement to use these JG and TB modifiers to include additional 340B covered entities beyond those that had used the uh, the modifiers based on OPPS rules in, in the past. So critical access hospitals and grantee programs now are relied uh, must rely or submit the modifier requirement for their Medicare Part B drugs in order for CMS to calculate the inflation rebate penalties that are stipulated in the Inflation Reduction Act. So again, most of the hospitals that we've been working with are used to using the Part B modifier. So this represents a new billing change for a small subset of 340B covered entity types. The um, All 340B providers need to start coding their claims with either the JG or the TB modifier starting in January 1. And we're still waiting for guidance to come out from CMS on how Medicare Part B or Part D, so retail claims, will be codified uh, to help with regard to the inflation rebate penalty calculations
1: yeah i don't have a lot to add on this one other than it feels like we haven't had as much updates on the modifiers since we're about to hit i mean we're two weeks out from january 2024 and that's a little scary like is everyone prepared to um, update their billing with the modifiers and you're right what about contract yeah. pharmacy and retail that it feels like we should have heard something by now the only yeah. thing i can think of is maybe that can get kicked down the road um, but that also means that cms won't be able to um uh, levy the inflation penalties under the IRA to manufacturers because part of that is they have to exclude 340B. And yeah, a little concerned that information is gonna come out last minute and, and covered entities and the respective um, you know, associated yeah. business partners like contract farms and TPAs won't have enough time to react to whatever that expectation is, especially on the retail side. But you know, we always tell people, but for if you're a hospital or FQAC billing Medicare, CMS specifically, um Medicare, then make sure you're ready to add some modifiers. you know, just the TB modifiers, kind of what I tell people um would be sufficient when I when I reached out. So t- just some concerns around that and making sure that that's actually gonna be be implemented on time. Uh but again, CMS hasn't really pushed that or sent updates on that to make sure that yep. everyone's doing it.
0: Yeah, so again, a small kind of operational change that covered entities need to be prepared for for next year. I think this may end up being a larger topic of concern for us next year, maybe going into 2025. In August, or maybe it was September, CMS identified the first 10 drugs are going to be subject to Medicare price negotiation. So starting in 2026, those drugs are going to be available at the maximum fair price for Medicare beneficiaries. So covered entities will need to be paying attention to what CMS rules um, and requirements are going to be for accessing the Medicare negotiated price, on top of being able to access the 340B price. So we may see a change in how covered entities need to budget for these drugs, and how they may be getting uh, to acquire or procure these drugs once some understanding around how the the discounts going to be made available to all all providers.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so really, so if you're a critical access hospital or a grantee, even your Maryland non. Um, Accepted hospitals, all those, all those types of covered entities that haven't been doing modifiers. So community hospitals that are rural, uh, please double check and make sure that your billing departments aware that for um, OPPS payment billing with Medicare that you are ready on January 1st to go live with adding that JG or TB modifiers. Again, they kind of say either or, but but the reality is, you, you know, you've got to put those modifiers on for Medicare that could cause problems later if you don't.
0: All right. March was a busy month. Another development that came out of March was the letters that were issued by HRSA to 340B hospitals who had been subject to a HERSA audit in the past. There was a follow-up information request. Um, 60 covered entities received uh, these compliance inquiries. The letter specifically asked the covered entities to provide some details regarding child site registration processes, various policy elements, how they define eligible provider, how they define eligible location. And interestingly, they asked some things that fall outside of the uh, 340B statute. They wanted information regarding how 340B savings was calculated and how 340B savings was passed on through their community benefit. Um, we'll talk about child site notices or child site registration requirements because these responses, the letters or the responses to these letters were referenced in uh, a follow-up notice that HRSA published later in the year regarding child site registration policy. So um, we had a couple of clients that we worked with, Rob, that had to submit responses to these letters.
1: Yeah. And 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 then there's some follow-up responses. We weren't sure if there were any, and then there were a couple of follow-up responses just following up on some of those questions. But but yeah, interesting. You You, you hit what I was going to say is- we weren't sure why they're asking some of the questions, and of course when – and we'll talk about it because it's on our top 10 here later, so I don't want to um, do any spoiler alerts. But, um, yeah, interesting that they then used response letters to justify a stance that they take later regarding FAQ 4301, uh, which took them a few months to get out. Interesting, almost six months to get out. But, uh, but yeah, it's like they – they needed to to add a lot of commentary around that. And, and, and it's curious that they use that fact that there's X percent that did use it. Um, and it's hard to to manage that from their perspective. So um, yeah, so I, my, my feeling on this one too, is um, I think as, as these, as HRSA needs to collect information to make decisions that we might see more of this type of thing where they, um, you know, have these desk audits or desk inquiries that they send out to just a subset of the po- uh, 340B covered entity yeah. population to collect information so they can make decisions moving forward. But We'll see because, um, uh, yeah, uh, some decisions- I don't recall
0: made. ever seeing them take this approach. You mentioned the desk audits. and I wanted to bring that up. I remember submitting information to desk audits around government contract and maybe contract pharmacy registrations. Yep, yep. But this is the first time I recall personally like sending letters out, requesting information to a specific cohort of 340B providers. And do you recall them ever doing this before?
1: No, you're right. The only desk audits I saw was collecting a single contract here or you're right, your government contract here or yeah. something like that. So- um, sometimes we'll see something about, um, you know, some child side, I, I imagine they could do it for in-house retail pharmacy would be another one they could do. But as far as collecting information, you're right. This is the first time I see them do this, but, um, yeah. but, you know, as they continue to have to clarify and fight against the fact that they don't have rulemaking authority in many areas of the 340B program, um, it's almost feels like they they're doing this to justify some of their guidance, um, yeah. in, in hopes that, that that'll work. But I, I guess I'm, yeah, I think, I'm not a lawyer but, but yeah not sure I'd why be curious works. to
0: just curious to to know what others out there think you know I think the 340b pundits that maybe we we referenced or had heard talk about this maybe presumed that Hersa was gathering information in case they needed to go to Congress and testify on mm-hmm. uh behalf of themselves with regard to program oversight as the discussion around 340b program reform is coming up but you know, they used information provided by covered entities in response to these letters to clarify uh policy, which I think is pretty pretty amazing. You know, maybe unprecedented. I don't know. Again, I'm I
1: like I unprecedented. Like, yeah. I don't know about amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. There's a positive connotation to that. Right, 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 right. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about really the go- g- we're getting into the child site notice uh, stuff, so we'll, we'll save that for, for later. Yeah, yeah I, was, um, I was trying not
1: to do spoilers. Hard not to mix those two together yeah. since they're related.
0: Yeah, the, the lines blur here throughout the year. So, um, all right, next hot topic. Um, this is one of the big wins for covered entities. CMS published their proposed role in July, 2023. So this came out while many of us were sitting in different educational sessions at the Summer Coalition. Um, D- CMS clarified how they were going to remedy the Medicare Part B payment cuts to 340B hospitals that were ruled unlawful by the Supreme Court uh, last year. Um, CMS is gonna begin issuing lump sum uh, repayments to impacted covered entities starting in 2024, totaling upwards around $8 billion because the, um, the the CMS is approaching this in a budget neutral manner. There's gonna be an offset uh, of the repayment with a n- reduction in non-drug payments to all hospitals that starts in 2026. Initially, they were proposing that that would start in 2025, but with the final rule that was published last November, um, they're uh, pushing that uh, non-drug payment reduction out to 2026. It will continue for 16 years. Um, and again, covered entities should expect to see repayment from CMS via their regional MAC starting in 2024. Big win for hospitals, right, Rob?
1: Love it. Yeah. Le- yes. And of course, then there's always like, almost like, a, okay, big win, lump sum payment, get this payment back. And then of course, yeah. since it's budget neutral, the, the pulling back over 15 to 16 years starting in 2026 is kind of a bummer. And there are some lawsuits, right? We know there's some lawsuits trying to see if, hey, can can we get that? corrected can they get into budget to cover it and you know a lot of people talk about we're talking about eight billion we've we've spent so much more on the ukraine war or, or these other things that is not something we can do to help our own health systems and hospitals right and it doesn't just affect our 340b hospitals it affects all our all our hospitals all and hospitals. all opps payment reimbursement for non-drug spend is going to get impacted and that's a hard pill to swallow for everyone, and um, and so we'll see if those losses do anything. It's the federal government, right, and um, see if they can get this in the budget in a future year, so they don't this re- reduction payment doesn't have to occur. But as of right now, we I tell everyone just just you're gonna have to plan on a 2026 reduction in your non-drug reimbursement from Medicare OPPS payments to be half a percent less. So, yeah. another
0: thing that was left out of the final rule that covered entities had been hoping for, um, but aren't didn't see is Medicare Advantage. So mm-hmm. the rule does not address how Medicare Advantage plans that may have paid covered entities, according to OPPS, need to remedy those, those covered entities. So, again, I think the guidance has been that covered entities will need to work with their MACs in order to determine or to work directly with the contracted Medicare Advantage plans to, to figure out if they're going to be owed a a repayment for previous uh, uh, reimbursement reductions.
1: Yeah, and, and some health systems we work with have talked about it, that managed Medicaid – or managed Medicare, sorry – can be kind of large, and yeah. so for the as ones big that as people. as big
0: as straight Part B. So it's it's just as big for a lot mm-hmm. of hospitals as the uh, the straight Medicare that's going to come back to them. So
1: yeah, yeah, so yeah, and and i, I got a bad feeling that that's that's a that's an uphill battle that most in most cases the managed Medicare plans are probably going to push back and it might not see much. But you never know. Um, without the government saying that they have to, I think that's going to be a tough one. But I think if that you do have big impact, it's something you should at least ask and look into. Um, because there are some dollars there that could be had. All right, cool.
0: Our next development's related to state-enacted 340B laws. So in August of this year, Arkansas and Louisiana became the first states to enact laws that essentially protect 340B contract pharmacy arrangements. So in response to some of those laws that had been passed, up to seven manufacturers have withdrawn or relaxed or reduced some of the restrictions that they've um, been applying to contract pharmacy provisions to covered entities in those states. There's some legal challenges by the pharmaceutical industry to these state-specific laws, but we have other states that are pursuing some types of protection. So we've got Michigan now, Missouri, and Massachusetts that have all introduced similar legislation. So while we think of the 340B program as a federal program, there is some benefit to lobbying the the need to protect the program at the state level I've had some other state specific developments too three states have passed laws that stipulate 340b reporting requirements uh in an effort to promote uh, more transparency around 340b program activities so uh, often think of just you know what Congress is doing with 340b or could do with 340b but but clearly there is um there is impact that can occur at the state level Rob what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, this, you know, I I think the first round of state-level 340B laws really started with PBMs years ago, right when PBM started restricting uh, or reducing pricing um, on 340B contract pharmacy, and that was successful, right? We always wonder, well, how come we don't take this up at a federal level? And there has now has been some federal-level um, legislation around that, but that's after half the states over 20 plus 26, 27 states. In fact, I think last I saw, thought I heard 31 states passed laws around PBM. And so I think the states are following the same suit, right? Covered entities within states are having trouble getting anything done at a federal level, so they're starting at the state level. And it feels like the same thing will happen when you get enough states who have passed state-level laws. Then, then you know, then hopefully at that point, the uh, the federal Congress will take, take it on at the federal level. Even though we are, you know, we already know um, Doris Matsui has a bill. I think uh, we, I saw in some of the um, news outlets that there should be another bill around manufacturers Um, in 2024, or even come out in December, that will be pro um, covered entities and contract pharmacy impact. So we'll see how that plays out. But I love the idea that, you know, if you can't get it done at a fair level, start at your states. Um, And the fact that manufacturers have responded, you know, like you said, a little split, right? Some are like, no way, we're suing. This should be a federal matter. But what's interesting, they say that, but at the same time, the PBM bills, if that's true, should have been a federal um, matter and over more than half the states enacted laws and and it impacted the PBM side. Yeah. Um, I think pharma is a you know maybe a bigger lobby and they push back a little more than uh the PBMs did. But um, but you know, the fact that we have manufacturers saying, okay, then in those states we won't restrict 340B pricing, I think that's a positive sign that and, and a reason more and more states will enact these laws. So I I would expect 2024 is gonna be a big year where we're gonna see a lot more of these, just in case at a federal level we don't get it done.
0: Yeah. What are your thoughts on the reporting requirements? So the one of the common discussions in uh the Capitol is we need more transparency we need to understand where 340b savings comes from what it's used for that was a primary um kind of you know point of the new york times and the wall street journal articles last year and now some states are saying hey look covered entities need to share information with us so we have a better understanding what are are your thoughts around the reporting requirement provisions
1: yeah interesting like i saw minnesota was the most recent one um Uh, kind of looking at issue draft guidance around provider reporting requirements. And you're right. So we're starting to see a few states try and do something in this space and uh, not super excited by it because there is a decent amount of traction already um, on the federal level for that. I I really thought that'd be one of the bills that passed here in 2023 because there was some bipartisan support for that. And right. And like we talked about early on in the year that it's kind of the olive branch. It's like, okay, if we've got to get something done, it was one of the NAC provisions, NAC um, uh, pharma provisions as well, that transparency. And it felt like that's when most people can get behind, um, especially with some compromise. of the negative press. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. As long as the reporting requirements aren't overly onerous, we'll talk about uh, a senator's requ- request for information—a laundry oh. list of different things that that Christ. just practically doesn't make sense. But you know, I do think that that's a reasonable compromise that the 340B providers can give up. It's like, yeah, we can share information uh, around, you know, some high level details of our 340B program for the sake of uh, providing transparency. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and and we work with a fair amount of covered entities today, and I, I'd say nearly all of them have pretty big charity care programs. Are trying to expand clinical services to patients in need, and they're doing they're meeting the intent of the program now. But again, the, the hard part is it almost doesn't address the fact that part of the three hundred and forty B program's intent was to help keep doors open, right? Part of it's yeah. just, hey. Right now we're seeing health systems. Like I just saw, you know, Becker's puts out all these articles and multiple health systems across the country are running in the red and not just a little bit in the red, like hundreds of millions of dollars in the red. And this is a program that can help offset some of those losses. And so sure, they can't expand contract farm, expand services and they can't expand contract pharmacy, increase savings. They can't really, they're doing more and more charity care because, you know, people are suffering as well with with increased um, inflation and everything. But, and although that's coming down a little, we still have this inflation and there are increases that aren't going to decrease; it just means we're going to slow it. And so, I think there's all this need in community, you know, and all these extra costs along with all the inflation that's occurred, and health systems are struggling. I just feel like, sure, we can do transparency, but then they we're not addressing the fact that the 340 program was set up to help keep doors open, especially in rural communities where some hospitals close, and then patients yeah. are heavily impacted when they have to travel uh, longer distances. Right? We know that that impacts care if you don't have a hospital in proximity to you. That's a huge risk in a major event if you don't get to a hospital ER in time. And and that's that's my concern with this is it's not looking at that. They're purely looking at, well, what are you doing with your savings? The says, well, how's about you look at their financials and see if they're even operationally viable? Because if sure. they're not, I think they should get a pass. Like, heck, you know what? Keep your doors open. Don't even report. Don't even waste time yeah. reporting. Yeah. But Sorry, that's my soapbox. Did I go on a soapbox? No, I, I,
0: I agree. I mean, we're talking about safety <laughs> net providers here. So yeah, as long as the, the reporting requirements are practical and not punitive uh based on what is
1: reported so yeah 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 the the fact that they go like you know we've got clients with lots of child sites right and i'm like they want them to track everything down to the child side level that's what we saw it's like okay if you're a small hospital with one child site okay we get it that's doable but if you've got a hundred child sites or child site hospital wow that becomes almost impractical right that's not how the program even operates i don't even know how they do it to be honest um and uh, and that's what we're seeing. It's almost like okay, we have legislators creating requirements and then saying, "Oh, they're already collecting this data. It should be easy," you know. And I'm like, uh, "Where did they? Who who did they hear that from? Yeah. Like, who yeah. told them that this would be? Did they talk to a hospital leadership team? So oh, yeah." We have all this data because I don't know any hospital leader is going to say, "Yeah, we have all this data ready to go. No problem. We just got to hit a button and it's going to spit out a report for you." Yeah. And that's a heavy data collection when you go when you say every single department has to now track charity care, net savings in three hundred and forty B, and that's and for everyone listening, that's not how three hundred and forty B savings is collected by individual cost center within a hospital, yeah. right? It all rolls up to a single three hundred and forty program in most cases. Some multiple universes, but we're not we're not splicing out every single child site. Yeah. Um, and that, that's what they're asking for, which is really, really hard.
0: Yeah, and, and you, you probably understand why they're asking for that. They're trying to, you know, dig into this issue of hospitals acquiring physician office practices and, you know, implementing hospital-based clinics that are eligible for 340B. And that was highlighted in a few of those New York Times and Wall Street yeah. Journal articles. But to what they're asking for isn't going to uh, help them identify the the need for reform and how hospitals define child-side eligibility or how HRSA defines child-side eligibility, which again, we'll get to in a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. All right, moving on, September, um, th- 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 talk a little bit about some cr- congressional developments. In, so in September of 2023, uh, Bill Cassidy, who's a senator from uh, Louisiana, he's a ranking member of the Senate Help Committee. He sent letters to two 340B hospitals asking for detailed information on financial aspects of their participation in the 340B program. That request was then extended to two additional um, community health centers in November of 2023. Uh, senator Sanders, Bernie Sanders, who um, chairs the help Committee, didn't sign the letters. These requests then, I guess, are not part of a formal investigation right now. But it highlights there is interest in some members of uh, some influential members of Congress digging into 340B program activity. Some other congressional developments that we've seen over the course of the year, um, back in the summer, uh, the, the Gang of Six, I think that we're referring them to as uh, a group of senators that have reached out to 340B stakeholders with a letter regarding input, regarding um, bipartisan 340B po- program policy considerations. Some of the uh, folks that have read uh, or written about this uh, believe that the, the Gang of Six might be introducing some proposed 340B legislation changes in 2024, um, but we're not entirely certain of where those um, uh, those letters are going to go right now. Also, we just saw this month the House advanced another health care bill. PBM price transparency bill, um, that's going to include a 340B reporting requirement to submit data to HRSA around the difference between your acquisition costs or your 340B price and the reimbursement that you receive from Medicaid managed care plans. So just a record reporting requirement, no specific changes to reimbursement models, but the risk is or the concern is that these managed care organizations are going to feel pressure to adjust reimbursement as 340B covered entity margins in their Medicaid business are going to be made public on Hearst's website.
1: Right. Right. And and that's a bill we've talked about before. Definitely one to watch. Um, And of course it passed in the house. This is on December 11th. So very recent information on that one. It does have to make its way through the Senate. The Senate does have some other bills that they're, they're, they're playing with that they could have included language, but they didn't. And so again, just to remind everybody, right, we do have this split Congress where the house is, um, uh, under Republican control, and the Senate still under Democratic control, to the point with um, Republican Bill Cassidy not really getting approval from uh, Bernie Sanders, the chair. And so, right, so we have this question: Okay, well, how much enforcement does those letters have? Are these companies going to respond in in good faith, or are they going to hold back and and wait for it to be a formal request? I almost feel like it's a. What does everyone say? Not to be fair, I haven't had this situation, but you know, when, when you get when, when I guess a police officer pulls you over and say, can I search your car? Right. You can kind of say, some people are just nice to say, I yeah, go ahead. Cause I don't have anything to, 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 uh, to risk. Right. That would be me. But people say don't because it just wastes your time. Right. You yeah. don't have to, they need reasonable cause and they don't have it. And they don't have the, you know, the statute or the authority to actually do it. They only, if you give them permission. So I, I don't know what these CHCs and hospitals would do with these requests, yeah. but interesting that now it's voluntary and yeah. Um, you know, so now
0: they're now they're confronted with uh, the thought of maybe playing chicken with with Bill Cassidy and decide whether they well okay I'm not going to respond. What what will you do with that?
1: So yeah yeah. So I you know a hard position to be in and be and partly because those requests it was a short dated right t- short yeah. turnaround time and a lot of information and it and it's like okay do we even have the the capacity to even get this done without you know, um, in, in, impacting staff significantly, making work extra hours and so forth. So re- really tough. I'm curious to see what happens there. And and yeah, definitely a bill to watch is this bill because this could impact um, managed Medicaid reimbursement if they choose to go that route, you know, like uh, AAC type thing versus allowing reporting of the additional payments.
0: Yeah. One, one thing that we're not talking about with regard to um, a Washington DC update is a draft bill for contract pharmacy provisions. I think you mentioned it a few moments ago, Rob, but at coalition in the summer, you know there was lots of discussion that uh, Congresswoman Matsui was going to be issuing or releasing a, a draft of a, a proposed legislative change that would codify contract pharmacy provisions. Doesn't sound like there's been bipartisan support to date. Maybe that's changed based on some feedback we've heard from 340B Health. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I, I think it boils down to the fact that um, the House and the Energy. Uh, commerce committee and the subcommittee on health rights Republican controlled. So Democrats don't actually control the agenda necessarily for what bills hit. And I think that's part of the issue. So Doris's bill yeah. hasn't made it um, to that energy and commerce subcommittee on health. And uh, so we'll wait and see what happens in 2024 if, if that that can make it at least to that subcommittee on health um, for review and discussion and vote. Um, so def- definitely something pending I hope it does but um and, and and then it would have to get it would have to get through the House in order to go through across the Senate unless there's a Senate companion bill created and haven't heard much about it, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Big, big uphill battle though, if it moves forward. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Next update uh, in the fall. Again, this is, I think, a staple update that we usually uh, share with our, our clients and folks that we work with. HERSA updated its data request list for uh, its HERSA audit activity. So in September of 2023, HRSA implemented some revisions to the DRL. Uh, Some of the changes included uh, updates to policy expectations. So now policies should reflect all 340B operations. Previously, the clauses or the the stipulations for policies were only um, expected to address contract pharmacies. So now all of your in-house and mixed use pharmacies need to be accounted for in your policies and procedures. They're asking for unbundled trial balance details for hospitals asking for some additional details regarding uh, Medicaid billing processes, asking for Medicaid carve-out plans, so bins, PCNs, and groups that you're excluding from your uh, program if you carve out. Uh, Pexis also updated a version of the DRL on their website. We haven't seen one of these um, submitted to a covered entity that we work with, but for grantees, it looks like the DRL is going to ask for additional information regarding combined purchasing processes.
1: Yeah, um, decent updates. We've gone through a couple of hearse audits already um, for fiscal year 2024. As a that's of course October 1st. I've, uh, I've supported a couple, and I've got a I've got another couple coming up. So it's been hot and heavy on the hearse audit side. And um, I think that in, in general, for you know, for our clients, they know that the, most of these things we already expected as part of our annual independent audits and and kind of yeah. held them to. But some of these are extra. The one, you know, that I, the couple of things I'll say that from the HERSOTs, if you are, and we've talked about this previous as well, if you have a lot of child sites and you're carving a lot of states for Medicaid, um, there's some kind of uh, leniency with how many UBO4s you have to provide if you're carving in. Now you do have to provide a UBO4 for every state you carve in. And that's, say you carve in 10 states and you have 100 child sites, you do have to provide um, a UBO4 for every single state you carve in for every single child site. So that could be 1,000 UBO4s you have to try and look for. Now, granted, you probably won't have ubo force from any child sites for all those out-of-states, but you still have to look. And so uh, that was a big increase where before we can kind of say, hey, this is all the same address, can we just get one? Um, the, that That's definitely become a tighter risk. And of course, for retail, in-house retail, if you're carving in that uh, necessity to screen capture, if you have modifier requirements or something, or NPI ahead of time, that's part of the DRO now, where before it was just if you had a sample, then it'd be traced and you try and identify that. So a yeah. few extra things in there that I think um, are above and beyond what um, we've seen in the past.
0: Yeah, the, the updates over the last number of years have always been additive. So they're not adding things and then taking things away. So so the the it's a it's a fairly significant lift getting all of your data prepared for HRSA audits. Uh, and sometimes the turnaround time is not very long. It's you may have three weeks between the time when you receive the hearse audit notice and the DRL and have to have all of your data uploaded prior to your remote site or your on-site visit. So covered entities really need to look at the DRL. And make sure you have uh, you know, a good understanding of where you're going to gather all of that documentation and start staging that documentation now. There's things like a trial balance crosswalk and list of contract pharmacy accounts and uh, copies of all of your account invoices. You can gather those today. You don't need to wait until you have a hearse audit notice to start pulling that information. So really spend a lot of time talking to clients about look at the DRL And make sure you're staging this documentation ahead of time because you may get the hearse audit notice at a really bad time of the year for you. Maybe somebody's got vacation or it's around the holidays and your turnaround time is going to be fairly tight. You want to be able to um, work through a lot of the more challenging data elements like your 340B universe and utilization data as opposed to maybe working on some of these easier to gather um, administrative pieces.
1: Yeah. Hey Greg, before we move on, I wanted to go back because I, I I meant to say something but I totally forgot because I focus on Doris because she's my favorite. Um, Doris, I represent Matsui. By the way, um, if anyone from Matsui's um, group ever listens, we still still love to have her on the podcast someday. Okay, just got to put that out there. Um, the I, I did want to go back on that only because a 340B uh, report actually put out something and, and more based on what 340B Health and um, Marine said about the 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 six senators, the gang of six senators, right, that they um, they are looking at putting out legislation. And I I, I believe what um, came out a, a few days ago was that we think in early 2024, they are going to put out some, introduce some legislation that could likely have contract pharmacy in there. Yeah. And so I okay. think that's it, right? We don't know if Doris, um, so we'll be able to do anything on the House side at this current time. She needs a Republican co-sponsor. To probably get it on on the agenda, and so she's good. She, I'm guessing she's still looking for that for 2024. But be interesting to see what the the six senators do with their legislation, if and if contract is included. Which I think there's a high probability it will be. Um, I think this group is a more pro 340b covered entity um, yep. than some of the other senators uh, currently that are trying to impact the program. So I did want to highlight that that that's because I kind of felt like. Kind of made it seem like it would still have to come through a uh, representative at but but in this case, we're actually saying that we think those senators might actually come up with a p- potential Ten- legislative resolve.
0: Yeah, sen- Senate introduced bill. So yeah, yeah,
1: yeah out. No,
0: no, that's good. No, good. Another OPA related development again, more recently, um, is some leadership changes. So, mm-hmm. uh, Lieutenant Commander Egwum is going to be moving on from his position as Director of OPAs, staying at HHS, but taking another role. Chantel Britton was um, uh, identified as the uh, the acting Director of Office of Pharmacy Affairs. So, um, fairly short tenure uh, for Lieutenant Commander Egwum.
1: Uh, Twenty one months, I think I saw in the report. Yeah. Yeah, not sure. I'm sure there's some back chatter there. But, uh, you know, I, for, for us, you know, I actually got to talk to uh, Commander Egwam at a Coalition a DC either last year or the year before. And uh, it seemed like a really nice guy. So wish him the best of luck. And yeah. uh, hopefully whoever comes in and formally takes his place uh, from um, PHS will um, will be someone who understands the program really well and, and hopefully can provide good guidance and, and good decision making um, for how they, the OPA enforces program um, regulation. All right. So that's a great segue because we're going to talk
0: about HRSA enforcement now. This was our number two uh, topic in terms of importance across our staff. Um, October 2023, HRSA published a notice addressing the immediate use of 340B drugs in unregistered locations. So in the federal register on October 27th, they clarified its policy um, regarding use of 340B drugs in new off-site hospital departments. We've talked about this as the FAQ 4301 uh, provision. So, uh, beginning in June of 2020, this is a little bit of history here, PARSA had allowed covered entities to use 340B drugs in new locations before they appeared on a filed cost report or were registered on OPA database um, as child sites. And they published that as an FAQ. It was FAQ 4301 or 4301. Um, at the time, There was some communication through Apexis to different stakeholders that this wasn't related to the PHE, even though we were kind of in that first wave of the COVID pandemic, that this was HRSA's interpretation of child site eligibility timing uh, as 340B canon. So this is permanent interpretation. When the PAG was expired in May by the Biden administration, they pulled back this provision that caught everybody off guard because, again, we thought this wasn't related to PAG-specific flexibilities. Through the notice that was issued at the end of October, covered entities were given a transition period. So um, there's uh, different approaches that covered entities need to take now based on the notice. If you've got 340B drugs being used in new locations that are on your cost report, but you just haven't registered them yet, you need to register them in January. If you have new uh, 340B eligible locations that are not yet on your cost report and not registered, HRSA is expecting an email from you outlining what those departments are, when they're going to hit the cost report, and when you're going to register them. So with the issuing of this notice now, covered entities are going to have to delay implementation of 340B operations in new hospital-based departments until they appear on the cost report and get listed on OPACE. That's anywhere from 9 to 22 months, depending on how you sequence the opening of these departments with your cost report. Really significant operational challenges and, of course, financial challenges as well, now that we have to revert back to the legacy interpretation of when new outpatient departments are
1: eligible. Yeah, super unfortunate. And those listening to the podcast know we talked about this one pretty deeply because, um, yeah, I had a visceral reaction to this, this, um, this tact. And, you know, part of me wonders if this, you know, this is all uh, uh, conjecture on my part, but, you know, I wonder if some of this has to do with um, Lieutenant Commander Egwin leaving. Just because yeah. of the the impact and you know how many lawsuits have occurred, I, I can't remember what the number is now. Quite a few IDNs and and uh, law firms have sued her. So based on this and yeah. and probably also you know the way they handled it, right? We're telling us for three years it was one way, and three days prior, changing their mind. Super, super difficult pill to swallow. Um, one thing I do want to highlight because we're still in that we're in December. Um, right? This goes into effect. I think they had a 90 day grace period. So that should end around January 25th of 2024. So we're a little over a month out, a month and 10 days or so. If you did u- utilize this particular provision, a new location prior to October 27th, so October 26th or prior, you can still submit information on location and be kind of grandfathered in. You just have to let HERSA know when that will be on a filed cost report and, and you know, I think some other information around that. Um and so so just a reminder, if you haven't done that, especially if you filed your cost report in November and and the sites opened up between – so if you if you filed in November, that means you're at end of June uh, fiscal year. That means so if you open up a new site between July and October 26th and you want to consider it 340 to be eligible based on what we knew at that point in time, you still can. You just have to provide the information here. So please don't forget to do that. Um, otherwise, you'll be at risk after January 25th-ish. Um, We think that's the date when we count 90 days out. Um, So just want to just remind everybody about that as an action item. If you did open up a new site during that time period.
0: Yeah. So I think this is a gut punch to a lot of covered entities because strategically you may have planned on opening up a clinic with Mm -hmm. the expectation that you could utilize 340B and and start realizing savings to help help your organization. And now, you, you know, if that was part of your plan, you're looking at that. Uh, that lag period that we've, you know, v- we're very familiar with prior to that FAQ 4301 being published.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, so another lawsuit to pay attention to, right? Yeah. Um, We have, we have a lawsuit. I, I know I don't want to jump the gun on the next one, but you know, that lawsuit's kind of cleared up now to the lawsuit is anyway, not, not the post follow-up on it, but um, just another one we're going to want to pay attention to see how that plays out. And if that's going to impact and change um, HRSA's course on immediate eligibility. Um, and you know, and on this one, we actually had um, Emily Cook from MWE On, one of the 340B attorneys in the space, does a really nice job of understanding 340B and providing um, support to covered entities who use her firm. And um, you know, she highlighted, I still she said one thing that I hadn't thought of, and of course, that's that CMS immediately considers the locations eligible from a reimbursement stance. Yeah. And the fact that HRSA doesn't is actually problematic because they're using the hospital's NPI. And how does that work in states like California where you're required to carve in? Well, you yep. can't. I mean, what do you do? It's an NPI. So you're car- you're billing that way, but then you're going to carve out, but you're mandatory. Carve in. I mean, it's a hot mess, right? I, I really think OPA needs to align with CMS for eligibility, yep. but of course, not my call. So yeah,
0: I mean, I, how- people have said that for for years working through this since you know, working off of that 1994 guidance, there's a big discordance between CMS hospital-based uh, or provider-based clinic standards and how Hrsa has kind of arbitrarily defined the timing of the eligibility of those um, CMS-approved locations. So, be interesting to see how that issue plays out in court.
1: Um, one other one other thing I'll mention: it, this doesn't happen very often, but I happen to have two clients do, doing it. Um, one that's going to start on January 1st, another one that's going to come up here, I think, in Q1 or Q2 of 2024 you know, over time, there's just sometimes consolidation of hospitals. So you might be in a small health system and there's a decision. And honestly, this isn't a 340B decision because it actually doesn't help 340B. It makes it harder. But, but for whatever reason, they're consolidating leadership. So they might say, okay, I've got a small hospital here that's operating as a standalone hospital. You know, in, in both of these client cases, they're both two-dish hospitals where they have a bigger-dish hospital that's really going to absorb the smaller-dish hospital. And, and re- once again, just for operational efficiency. Well, now what do you do? Because at the hospital, they're both qualified as DISH hospitals. They both meet the 11.75%. But when you merge that that smaller hospital into the bigger hospital, well, they're not on the Medicare cost report for nine to 22 months. Or you can't, you know, qualification won't occur for nine to 22 months because they're definitely going to be child sites. Um, I will say CMS has allowed a provision here. So we've um, uh, we've talked to CMS, not sorry, not CMS, HRSA stuck on the CMS side. Talked to HRSA and OPA about this and they will allow you to register it Um, As soon as that conversion occurs, but you will lose three months, but you're not losing nine to 22 months, right? Because you're going to lose somewhere in there. So I do thank OPA and and HRSA for that provision. And their argument is, well, because we know it's qualified previously. Now, if it's a new hospital that's not qualified, you're likely going to have to wait that nine to 22 months. And so that's one. If you have a non-qualified hospital and for operational reasons, you're merging them into a larger dish who is qualified, you know, uh, to Greg's nine to 22 month point, maybe do it at the very last month of your Medicare cost reporting period. So you don't have, so you have the, the least amount of downtime in that process. So just something okay. to think about and just wanted to highlight that since uh, we don't see it a ton, but yeah, I had two clients reach out that we're supporting in the last, you know, three to four months on this exact subject. And if you, if you need any help, reach out more than happy to talk through that with you.
0: All right, ready for our final hot topic. Number one, rated or ranked topic in terms of importance, no surprise. Oh yes, patient definition. We've talked about this for a long time now. I think since we started the patient uh, or the podcast, our very first episode was a roundtable um, with Alex and Patrick on patient definition considerations and. One thing we had been waiting for through the year was a ruling on the case between Genesis and FQHC based out of South Carolina and HHS on uh, the legality of patient definitions. So in November of this year, uh, South Carolina District Federal Court ruled in favor of Genesis, who had challenged HRSA's um, audit of their covered entity and diversion findings associated with that audit that resulted in them ultimately being terminated from the program. Through the midst of the lawsuit, uh HRSA um, reinstated Genesis into the program and asked for the court case to be dismissed. Uh, but Genesis doubled down and said, look, the, the court needs to make a ruling on the legality of the patient definition because there's nothing that stops HRSA from coming back and auditing us in the future on these um, standards that we feel are beyond the the scope of what HRSA can do. The ruling, which was in favor of Genesis again, was limited um, to HRSA's interpretation of patient de- patient definition just in the Genesis audit. So the court did not um, make a broad uh, legal determination around the patient definition and the legality of that patient definition, but they did endorse a broader uh, patient definition than what HRSA has conventionally used. Lots of questions remain open about the applicability of this rolling. Hospitals wanna know how this applies to them in the acute care space. We don't know how, or up until today, maybe we weren't sure how HRSA was gonna change their um, uh, enforcement of diversion prevention with regard to future audits. Um, Just this morning, as we were preparing to put this podcast episode together, HRSA published an update on its website. So under the educational resources of the HRSA 340B Drug Pricing Program website, there is a section now that clarifies um, resources related to the patient definition. So they've essentially aggregated a lot of different um, policies that have been published over the years, including the PHS statute from 1992, the 1996 guidance, and then some other notices around HRSA auditing activity, um, kind of kind of confirming their... In- Interpretation of patient definition, but no true changes um, to their HRSA audit process have been communicated through this website. I know, Rob, we've not had a lot of time to digest the update on the OPA website, but what are your thoughts initially?
1: Well, I was super excited when I saw the email from HRSA, right? So I guess I should point out for everyone if you're not signed up, HRSA does have a listserv you can sign up for and just get updates. They don't send a ton out, but when they do, they can, be, they can be a big deal, right? That's how we learned about a lot of things. So this one came out today where I was super excited, clicked on the link. I'm reading through, I read the first introduction. I'm like, they didn't say anything. And then they had all these links below. And I was like, that's just old links. It's links to the 340B statute. Yeah. The, the, the 340B statute, 1996 patient definition guidelines or guidance, I'm like, okay, we already knew all that. 2012 policy releases, 340B program updates, which are old, um, nothing new. I was like, there's no yeah, new information. New. So yeah, I was kind of bummed. I'm not
0: And mind. no reference to the the lawsuit. And maybe there's <laughs> reason for that. I'm sure there's some, you know, some some guidance or instruction was provided by HHS um uh, legal uh representatives to say, hey, look, we're not we're not gonna address this on the website. So interestingly, they're addressing patient definition, but the you know, the elephant in the room is that you're doing this because, you know, there's just been a lawsuit uh, adjudicated um in favor of you, you, know, a covered entity uh challenging your your approach. So Not a lot of changes. Let's go back to the Genesis ruling. Are you surprised at the ruling, or what are your thoughts from the uh, the ruling of the the federal
1: court? For me, I was surprised. Um, I I I didn't know. I actually thought it was a coin flip, so maybe I wasn't too surprised. Um, Coin coin. Yeah, that means I had. I was like, gosh, just go either way. Um, I was uh, – it was interesting. I guess HRSA recently hasn't had a lot of wins, right? Um, the statute's pretty um, silent on a lot of things, whether it's contract pharmacy or, or in this case, um, patient definition. And so HRSA is always interpreting. And, and, of course, easy for the courts to say. There's almost nothing – in the statute that says you can enforce it to this degree. And so I guess knowing what we saw on the contract pharmacy side or the orphan drug side, if you go back in time, um, I guess it does make sense where in general, I think HRSA is trying to put more guardrails of the program the way they see it should be ran, but because the statute just doesn't have a lot of meat to it, super hard for um, HRSA to be able to, you know, take these extra steps for enforcement the way they see it. And, but so, so I, I think I was surprised but at the same time wasn't and um and then I was excited to see okay where does this go um how how does this play out and and then of course disappointed that the response from Herschel was just reiterate what they've already said and not really say anything but
0: yeah you know I think Emily said this when we had her on the podcast is that the genesis ruling may you know the court may elect to rule just specifically in the case of Genesis. So I think everybody saw that ruling come out saying that, you know, HERSA or, or overstepped its boundaries in terms of defining patient eligibility in this one case, but it didn't apply to anybody other than Genesis. So covered entities are now standing there empty-handed wanting to know how do we extrapolate this decision to our um, our organization? And I think Nobody really knows how to move forward um, or is, you know, has a, a clear understanding of what they can do now moving forward um, to change their practice that would be in line with that particular ruling.
1: Yeah, if I can, there's a part of the very end of the Genesis um, brief, and uh, this is what this is why everyone's like, why did you expect Hertha to say more? And, and here's why we did, right? So as part of it, I'm going to skip a little bit of the introductory part, but basically it, um, the, the. The court said, in order to administer the dispute resolution process, Congress instructed HHS to establish under the 340B program, the agency, so here's the crux of it the agency necessarily will be obliged, right, so whatever that means, to set forth its understanding of various stakeholders' obligations under the 340B program, including an interpretation of the statutory term patient. However, as stated above, Hearst's interpretation of the term patient must be consistent with the plain language of the statute and the intent of Congress as explained above herse's pre- present interpretation of the term patient as reflected in the March 20 2019 now voided audit letter is inconsistent with the plain language of the statute and the intent of congress in passing the 340B statute so the fact that they just reiterated the 1996 patient definition guidelines which is what they're using to enforce um the patient definition with genesis that's where i have this disconnect it's like but they're not telling us if they're they're We can read the guidance, right? We know what the 340 patient definition says, right? You got to be a patient. You have to maintain a medical record, um, you know, all these things. And at the same time, they haven't told us what their interpretation change is. So that's my concern. We still, we don't know anything new about how they're going to enforce this at this point in time.
0: Yeah. And I guess HRSA still has the opportunity to appeal that decision. And I don't know if there'll be any additional Policy statements or releases that will come from HRSA regarding patient definition. This might be what we have now, this this update on the, the educational resource page, but um, certainly going to be a continued topic of discussion for 340B providers moving into 2024.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I get, I, I, yeah, and, and maybe they still are going to clarify and they're just re, first reiterating what's out there. Um, we yeah. don't know, but they didn't say they were like, I wonder if this is their response. And yeah, I this is it. Question. Right. Does it meet the courts ask of them? I don't think it does, but I'm not the court. So you never know. Well, that's it. Any other topics that
0: we missed, Rob, or any other updates that you want to share with everybody before we end our
1: conversation and break for the year? You know, I think that's our top 10. You know, we can always go long and we, we always want to be cognizant that we're getting closer, probably past that hour and, and we want to be respectful of everyone's time. But I just want to first thank everybody who listens out there. we receive received such a positive feedback um, that we're gonna continue into 2024. Uh, we do want to let everybody know that um we always take a little bit of a break through Christmas. Um, we try and um spend some time with family and, and just take a break and everyone's busy as well. So Our next episode will start on January 15th. I think we've got a good episode lined up there um, because we haven't confirmed everything. I won't say what it is, but uh, we're going to hit the ground running in in 2024. I always want to remind people if you've got topics you want us to talk about or if you want to come on the podcast and talk about something, we're always open to it. We love having guests on the podcast. It's really fun for us. Um, And hopefully it's fun for for our um, guests who come on. Um, we also want to mention in the meantime, Aiden um, did want us to remind everybody that we're still going to put out content between now and January 15th. If you haven't subscribed to 340B Inscripted or uh, Spendman Pharmacy uh, pages on LinkedIn or Instagram, please do so. We like to put out some content uh, through that as well. And then, of course, a little early, but just, um, you know, since we're not going to put anything out to January 15th, um, want to remind everybody we will be at um, the, the Winter Coalition in San Diego. Our booth number is going to be 611. At, at um, the Coalition, please stop by. Um, uh, it's, I'll be there. Um, Greg, are you going to Coalition? No, I'm,
0: I, I think I'm auditing that week.
1: What? Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right.
0: Then you'll be at summer then for sure. I will be. I like the summer one. Uh, San Diego is a long flight for me, even though Southern California in, in February is a nice break from the Pittsburgh <laughs> winter but uh, i'll definitely be at the uh the summer coalition
1: yeah yeah this this time's the last three days of january but yeah it's close enough to february but yeah Yeah. you're right i i I always feel the same way i'm in salt lake city so it's closer for me dc's a little harder but i'll be in dc with you as well more than likely i guess we haven't finalized plans yet but uh yeah if you're going to be at uh winter coalition please stop by and say hi for sure
0: all right anything else from aiden's notes that is that it
1: I think I covered it. Aiden can hop on and tell us if, if, if we missed
0: anything. We, we got webinars. So we're, again, planning on doing more CE webinars in 2024. So you'll see kind of details of those. I think the first one we're going to do in February is um, got great feedback on the one that you did, Rob, with Kat on uh, Medicare Cost Report and really kind of sharing tips and tricks on how to use Excel um, in the 340B world. So we're going to pull in a few of our uh, Excel wizards from the Spendman Pharmacy team and do a lot of uh, tips and tricks and demonstrations on how to buff up some uh, some Excel skills. So look for that in February, and then we'll have a a pretty cool lineup of uh, CE-based webinars for pharmacists and technicians throughout the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, I think we have four that we're shooting for. All will be CE-based, so you can get some more CEs. I will say I got fired right because I was the um, I was the low-level expert. I don't, maybe the the intermediate Modice. Excel wizard. So the novice uh, yeah. and so they fired me and uh, so cat's gonna come back again I, I I can't remember is it do we have Jeff or somebody else gonna who's our yeah, so three?
0: so cat and Jasmine who've both been on the podcast we've got one other one, one other uh guy from our team really sophisticated Excel skills he's a little bit shy a little bit uh um concerned about uh speaking in front of everybody but he's got great skills to share so we're gonna persuade him to to hop on. So.
1: so in other words, we're going to level up, fire fire myself um, so that I don't have to sit there and tell you what I learned while I was preparing for the webinar. We're just going to put the experts on who, who are much more advanced than I am and can give you really, really good advanced tricks on being much more efficient with Excel. And especially when you're doing things, whether you're pulling samples or you're, you're trying to make it more efficient for you to modify your uh, Medicare cost report uh, trial balance worksheets, A and C, so you can get them all lined up and pretty and, and make sure all your ducks are in a row we're going to be surveying
0: folks through our social media accounts so stay on the lookout for a survey where we're asking for different types of skills that you want to, um, have our, our folks show you, whether it's V lookups or pivot tables or other things that you've seen done in Excel, you just don't know how to do them. Uh, a lot of those things really, you know, a lot of those skills really can help make your job a little, a little bit easier. Um, cause you know, 340B is such a data heavy, um, uh type of uh type of work so stay tuned for that rob it's always a pleasure catching up with you i hope you have a wonderful holiday season brother
1: thank you you too greg appreciate it appreciate all the all the work you put into this podcast and all the preparation just everyone knows greg does most of the work i just show up and it's it's all mostly
0: mostly unscripted so (laughs) You know, aiden well, does just, all of the work i don't really do any work aiden does all of the work thank you aiden for all that you do because this is we, i think we all underappreciated how much work goes into putting together a, a well-organized well-designed well-engineered podcast and aiden does a fantastic job with it so
1: uh, and, and she doesn't come on very often aiden if you're still there um you can come on and wish everyone a merry christmas for us happy holidays everybody thanks for the shout out I totally didn't her. She's probably like, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah now my heart's racing. <laughs> yeah. She was probably sleeping. <laughs> All right. Well, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you. And I hope you have a great time off and, and a little catch a little break here over the next couple of weeks. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.